Hello, you are listening to Beyond the Briefcase, a law school podcast with Sarah and Meg. This week, we bring a guest to talk about their experiences navigating creative and innovative areas of the legal profession. Listeners, law school application season is also upon us. Hopefully, the following episode will bring you some clarity about your own process and choosing the right law program for you. We are extremely excited to be introducing Matilde Dochi today. She completed her bachelor's degree in law and languages in France and also completed two master's of law degrees, one in international trade and investment law in the Netherlands and the other in food law in Italy. Matilde, thank you so much for joining us today for this interview. Hello, Meg. Hello, Sarah. Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm delighted to be here and uh, I'm looking forward to answering your questions. Thank you so much. So we wanted to start off with getting to know a bit your experience in law school. So we wanted to know what motivated you to go to law school and if this was something that you were always interested in or maybe something that you discovered later on as a passion. And same thing with specifically food law. Was that the area that you always wanted to practice in or did originally you come in wanting to practice in a different field? Okay. So in France, uh, you have to make a choice um, around uh, 16, whether or not you want to specialize in languages slash literatures uh, or science or economic and social science. Um, I was set to become a vet since I was five, uh, but then I was really bad at math when I was 16. So I decided to shift uh, and I was really good at languages. And when I graduated, um, I wanted to do a job that would allow me to travel uh, and also uh, that I could do in several languages since I grew up in a multicultural um, family with uh, people mostly speaking French, but uh, scattered around the world. Uh, so I decided to specialize in uh, international law um, and later on uh, during uh, several internship in Asia, I stumbled across the field of food law and food law is a very niche topic. I was already aware of uh, food related uh, legal specializations that uh, someone could uh, do, uh, such as wine law. Um, I'm actually from uh, a wine region, uh, Bordeaux uh, in France, but I don't really like wine. So food was next on my list. Uh, And I was lucky because I found a program in Italy uh, that started like a couple of years before I found this field. Um, And when I was studying this, I decided to specialize even uh, further uh, in sustainable food system. And this is when I discovered uh, the field of alternative proteins. So for anyone that is not familiar with this concept is uh, the um, uh, concept of um, not uh, centering the food system around animal proteins. So egg, dairy, meat, fish and so on, but to rethink the way um, our food is produced and where does it come from and also how um, resource intensive it can be. And um, this is um, a way to produce uh, proteins in a more sustainable way. So like we have three pillars in the alternative protein industry, uh, plant-based. So from uh, different parts of plants, it can be the seed, the leaves, um, even sometimes 
the roots. Um, and then we have uh, everything that is fermentation derived. You may have heard that it's now possible to make uh, milk without milking a cow uh, by uh, using uh, fermentation techniques. And so one that uh, has been uh, getting a lot of um, attention this year is uh, cellular agriculture. So making, for instance, milk, uh, uh, meat uh, from uh, cells. And so you mentioned uh, internships in Asia. Um, how did that come about? Was that through school? Was that specifically through potentially uh, your work? Um, and if you can tell us a bit about that experience and if you would recommend kind of an international experience like that to other people uh, in law who are inter interested in international law. Okay. So um, I decided to do uh, internships in uh, Asia, um, in Vietnam and in Japan. When I was writing my thesis, uh, was actually related to food law for my first master's in international trade and investment law. Um, and it was difficult for me to find the data. So I really wanted to have a look there. And also it was another reason for me to travel because I love that. Uh, and I just starting uh, emailing uh, research institutes, uh, law firms I actually entered at um, IP uh, consultancy. Um, and that was from uh, Australia, but got an office in Hanoi, uh, Vietnam. And then I uh, interned at a French research center in Hanoi as well. And um, I also worked for the Ministry of Education uh, of Japan that has a similar research institute. And my best uh, piece of advice uh, to uh, students is to just try. You can, you should like email people that you admire or you think have something relevant to share. And the worst case scenario is that either they won't reply or they say no, but it's uh, it's worth a shot. Um, and having uh, international experience uh, makes you also like reflect on how the legal system that you are studying is structured and how uh, um, it is adapted in a different jurisdiction. So to broaden your horizons, that's really good. But of course, if you want to study, for instance, um, contract law in a specific country, and you only want to practice in one, uh, it's good to have exposure about how the functioning of another system, but I would say it's not maybe the best step, uh, the best uh, way to like learn about your own system abroad. And we actually have an episode that I believe just uh, came out. <laughs> We're recording this in September, uh, late August right now, listeners. We had an episode that just came out on networking. And, you know, that's something that the two of us really uh, try to implement as well, Mathilde is this idea of every time you're interested in doing something, reaching out to people who are already experts in the field or who know other people that are experts in the field. And you know, as long as you're polite about it, as long as you're genuine about it, the worst that they can do is not respond or to say no, which I, you know, I think are very fair responses. Um, but in our experiences, Every time we try out networking, every time we try out, you know, reaching out to others, it's always been a, a pleasant experience, I think. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, actually have the same experience. I would say, like, on average, I get an answer, like, 90 to, um, like, from, like, 80 to 90% of the time. Um, and I must say that I don't know if it's like by design or just like the way the industry is structured, but m most of the support that I received uh, were from uh, women. 
and I think especially so too. I agree with that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah we, we have especially... noticed that as well. I think more and more there's kind of that community building and women wanting to support women. That's very true. Mm -hmm. That's very true. I just want to clarify, Mathilde, for the food law, what, were there specific uh, courses you took or was most of this generated through uh, internships and traveling and networking? Uh, so I got a first glimpse of what food law um, was when I was studying my first master's because food law is like, uh, mostly addressed uh, in uh, like general like uh, masters um, when we talk about uh, WTO law, so the law of uh, the World Trade Organizations, because food is a commodity business and uh, there is a lot of politics going on uh, in this field. Um, and then um, the masters that I've done in Italy was uh, fully on food law, but it was a mix uh, also with uh, IP law, trade law, contract negotiation, uh, also um, uh, consumer protection, because the way food is advertised also uh, has to be compliant with consumer protection regulations. Um, and then also it involved uh, food safety uh, practices. Um, and alternative proteins was not covered uh, at uh, the time I took the master's and I think it's still not the case. And I got my knowledge by uh, networking, uh, reading a lot, uh, listening to podcasts, uh, reading, uh, reading articles, uh, taking courses and also like reading books. So if someone say one of our listeners was interested in going into food law, do you believe that it was necessary to have that graduate degree to be able to break into the field? Or do you think it would have been possible just with your bachelor's degree in law? Um, I would say it depends because um, it's a very niche uh, topic. Um, and most of the regulatory people I work with uh, was on when I was working in-house. They had a food science uh, degree, uh, food technology or even nutrition or food politics. Uh, so you can do it with simply a bachelor, but uh, having a master's like in Europe, it's uh, it's a must um, because uh, yeah, it's just the way the system is designed, but it's, um, listeners, they should not limit themselves if they only want to do a bachelor's because what I've, I've realized is like studying is nice, but what's uh, uh, like uh, career, career wise will like uh, push you further is like uh, experience and also like curiosity, uh, be willing to get uh, out of the common path and uh, explore new uh, ways to learn about the topic. And actually, Mathilde, um, I did some graduate schooling myself, but in um, not in law at all whatsoever. It was in English literature at Columbia. Um, I did two master's programs there as well. And so far, I have found uh, in my very, very nascent experience at law school for the two systems to be quite different, uh, the kind of academic uh, graduate work versus the more um, professionally inclined law school uh, curriculum, at least in North America. But I would love to press you on um, this line of topic just for my own curiosity. Um, did you find the bachelor's experience in law versus the master's, the more perhaps graduate work to be um, different in any kind of way, I suppose in structure or in ethos? 
Um, so I would say, um, <laughs> since I studied in several like uh, countries, the the way of teaching and also learning was very much different uh, in Southern Europe. So France, Italy, Spain, um, uh, Portugal, we tend to go to lectures, learn everything by heart, uh, do dissertations, and you have to quote any authors. You never say I think or like in my opinion. Uh, the teacher doesn't care and actually you will lose points if you state something that is uh, only uh, can only be attributed to you. Uh, whereas in the Netherlands, uh, it was a complete shock for me because they were asking me, what do you think? And I was, uh, I was hesitating at first because I was like, uh, I in the sense like me or like I, uh, according to like uh, author that I relate to um, and so in the Netherlands, I also had like fewer like lectures, uh, but I had to read much more like around. Uh, so I had two classes, two lectures per week, uh, two tutorials per week, and I had to read for each classes at least 1000 pages per week uh, and to write two essays of 4000 words per week as well. Uh, so the way of thinking was totally different, but at the end, is I think that was the best, even though that was really challenging because you are uh, trying to solve like real life problems uh, and you get more resourceful in, in the sense that uh, you have more ways to explore a certain issue from different angles. That's very, very intense. I will say that <laughs> even in my own graduate schooling, we, and you know, that was, um, entirely literary studies. So you would think tons of reading, tons of writing, of which there was there was a lot. However, not to that extent. That sounds very difficult. That probably helped you develop a lot of time management skills. A lot of time. I can imagine. I can imagine that you can't just casually read a thousand pages and casually pump out 4,000 words all of the time. That would be so exhausting. So speaking of which, since organizational skills, time management skills are so important in law school. And you definitely have very strong ones to have gone through that experience in the Netherlands. Do you have any tips for students going into law school who are scared of having to manage the readings and manage the assignments that, of course, are not as extreme as the ones you went through? But still, I feel like the skills could be applicable. Um, I would say that uh, don't be afraid to ask for help to your peers because we are all in the same boat. Um, I kept very strong friendships from my time there because I think it was trauma bonding. It was so tough that, uh, yeah, we thought uh, at some point, is it worth even uh, going to law school? But we all graduated. Uh, we all have done well. Um, and um, I was lucky because also in that university, you could get support from uh, the students in, uh, that were older than you, uh, that's uh, graduated before. So we had some uh, uh, tutors um, as well. And you get also like the overview of the program at the beginning of each period. For me, it was eight weeks. Um, every eight weeks, I will have exams. And before that, they will give us the schedule with the readings and also split the reading with uh, some of my friends like this could be more efficient and we have done like um, a study session together uh, but it's also part of the game that uh, maybe your work-life balance or like 
uh, life, uh, I would say like study, life balance is going to be a little bit disturbed, uh, but that's uh, a learning in process. Um, and I always uh, remind myself that, uh, you know, uh, if some people have done that before me, I can surely do it as well. That's a very good um, kind of mantra to live by, right? Is, you know, that that's something I think, at least I'll speak for myself, I'm trying to bring into law school right now, right? Is tons of people have come in and out of this. Tons of people have done well. I think I'm someone who can hopefully do the same. <laughs> it's like at least <laughs> best foot forward, right? Start with the best foot forward. Um, I would love to also ask, because in North America, this is, I think, a huge difference between the way that law school is conceived of between uh, North America and Europe, is that in North America, law school is a um, is a professional degree. It's some kind of uh, post, you, you would need some kind of bachelor's, really, in, in maybe something else to then delve into the study of law. So, for instance, I come from an English background, Sarah comes from a psychology background. We have many classmates who do political science and criminology, but we also have classmates who do who have done music and who have done engineering, who have done different sciences. Um, and so uh, everyone comes from a different background and then they go to law school. In Europe, it's, it's not quite the same, right? Uh, yes, you have some uh, ways to uh, access, for instance, to um, masters of law. Um, but the best, like either you do uh, so um, a bachelor's in law or you do maybe political science or some uh, university or even some country will uh, allow um, students that have not um, studied uh, that um, uh, subjects to take uh, entry exams uh, to be able to access to, to the master's. Uh, but in Europe, yeah, we tend to specialize like quite early and some degrees are more flexible than others. Like, for instance, you can do like a, a bachelor's in psychology, but then you can do um, um, a master's in marketing. And for law, since you need the basis, um, it's recommended to do the bachelor's uh, uh, as well. And so did you find, uh, and, and maybe you can compare the experience to if you have any colleagues who have done schooling in North America or, or elsewhere where the system is more of the um, kind of a professional degree. Did you find when you were very young to be quite um, pigeonholed into going into law? Like you, you were like, okay, I have to decide now as a 17 or 18 year old, like this is really what I want. Because both Sarah and I, we come from we, a couple years in between undergrad to, to law school where I think that's where we find some of our confidence. But I can imagine being very young and deciding, okay, law is the way to go. That must that must have been very intimidating. Yeah, uh, I would say that I was quite lucky because I come from a family that they all went to uni. So for me, it never crossed my mind like, oh, I'm going to take a gap here or I'm just going to try several things and let's see. Uh, I just happened to have uh, loved uh, law at the first sight. <laughs> um, and yeah, but I understood that sometimes you need a little bit more time to, to figure out what you really want. Uh, and it also depends, uh, like in Europe, on the culture of the country. Like in France, we tend to uh, do our high school exams, like final exams, and then go straight into uh, uni. Uh, whereas you have some countries like uh, Germany or the Netherlands, they, many students will uh, take a gap year 
or even maybe two years uh, before going to uni uh, just to figure out what they want to do. Uh, and I would say that there is no shame as well in like changing uh, topics uh, because um, you get sell like, uh, um, for instance, you get sold like uh, how law school uh, like would, should look like, for instance, uh, when you look at uh, series or like on the Internet or like, uh, I don't know, books and cinemas. But most of the time, it's not the reality. Um, and also talking to people that are already doing that job, like can bring uh, a little bit of clarity that, for those that uh, are still not 100% sure, uh, sure about their choices. Exactly. I like that. And also, I feel like people would be surprised how closely some programs or disciplines that seem so far apart actually relate to one another. And so it doesn't mean that if you change your mind and change your path, change your path, sorry, that you're going to be starting from nothing. It's very mm -hmm. likely that you'll be able to come in with the skills from that other field and use them and maybe even have a different perspective coming in than, than some other people. And it might allow you to stand out or even uncover a niche in, in that specific field as well and do something like you're doing. And so that's mm -hmm. one of the reasons why also we decided to start this podcast is that we know that there's really kind of this general understanding of what law is like that you see in the media and that it really doesn't necessarily reflect what most lawyers and most people who are actually practicing are doing. And so we want to be able to bring in people like you that can actually talk about today, their day-to-day, -day, talk about their experience, and show a different side of law that isn't necessarily as readily available to people. I completely uh, agree, and I really admire your initiative because I think it's uh, good to, you know, break up with uh, some cliches. Uh, and also we get many uh, opportunity to you know refine our like previous choices there is like immense amount of pressure in some culture to know what you want to do with the rest of your life when you are 16 18 and we have to be aware that uh, the world is not uh, functioning like this anymore and there is no shame in uh, trying many things and just to refine what you really want um, and uh, I agree as well that you have some skills that are transfer uh, transferable from uh, one industry to another. Um, like, for instance, uh, uh, being a master, uh, master uh, using words like uh, with uh, a language or literature degree uh, will help you to write amazing briefs, uh, for instance, uh, to make your arguments more compelling. And for me, like I've been active on LinkedIn, uh, like on a daily basis for, I would say, almost nine months. And uh, at first, um, yeah, I didn't know really how to condense my thought properly uh, in short post. Uh, but then I remember that uh, I've studied almost seven years that I had to write every single week. Uh, and now I'm doing pretty well. I'm still improving, but uh, don't let the fear of like starting out uh, preventing uh, you from doing things. Like at first, it's a journey. At first, it won't be perfect. It won't be the best. But then looking back, you will be grateful to see where you started and how far you have come. Um, now I think I want to turn uh, the conversation to uh, maybe some of the more specific elements of what you do in food law. So Mathilde, mm -hmm. you work as a food law consultant internationally. Um, obviously, talk about this as much as you want, but you know, 
have you come to notice any big uh, main regulatory differences between the food uh, systems in Europe versus other places in the world, like North America? Uh, yes. So in the uh, alternative protein field, there is a concept called like novo food. It's a food that has not been consumed for a long amount of time. And for that, they need to have their food safety uh, assessed by regulatory bodies. And in Europe, you have to do that at the European uh, Union level, meaning that uh, member states, even though they would be very eager to have uh, new products on the markets, they are not uh, free to allow them. So you have to go through an extensive procedure that's on paper is like around a year and a half, but in reality is like at least around three years. Uh, whereas in the US, you have something called uh, the grass notification system. Uh, so it's in the title. Notification means that you are not obliged to ask for authorization. Mm. Uh, and grass stands for generally recognized as safe. Um, and the FDA would usually uh, render uh, an opinion within like half a year. And regardless of the, the decision, as a company, you can still put the product on the market, uh, which from my point of view as a European, it's like a matter of like make sure that it's authorized is a bit concerning. But in the US, it's like ask uh, for, for forgiveness, not permission. And in Canada, it's like a little bit uh, in between because you have uh, a list of food that are considered non-novel. So as a company, when your product doesn't appear on that list, uh, you uh, make a case in front of Health Canada that this is not novel, so you don't need to ask for approval. And if they disagree, uh, then you have to uh, go through the novel food authorization uh, process. So, and you have uh, also like novel food regulations uh, in our jurisdiction, like the UK has kept uh, the one that's currently in force in uh, the EU because with Brexit, they left with no deal. So they didn't have time to reform the, the whole regulatory system. Um, and Australia has something a little bit similar to Canada. Um, and Singapore has something similar to uh, Europe, to the EU. Uh, but you have like less transparency in the sense that there is no list. But you have a stronger collaboration with authorities in the sense that they will help you uh, make sure that your uh, dossier is like strong enough to be approved. Whereas in Europe, it's like if uh, you forgot something, then you will get a time penalty for that. Mathilde, you really are a true expert. I'm astounded by the the wider array, and that makes so much sense, right? Because like in this world nowadays, every country gets food from other countries, right? From all around the world, and so you know there has to be this ability to consolidate and share the different standards and regulations that each country has. But I'm amazed that there are people like you who are able to just catalog all of the the differences. That's incredible. That's, uh, that was important for me to have like a global approach uh, because I was born and raised in France, uh, but it's, um, I'm... Um, uh, actually only half French, I'm a quarter Vietnamese and a quarter Dutch. And from a very young age, even though I grew up monolingual, uh, I was aware that food doesn't really necessarily have the same meaning depending uh, on whom you are talking uh, to. Or uh, also like what is the meaning of foods in a, a given culture? 
for instance, if you finish your plate in one culture, it will be like uh, highly appreciated. In another one, it would just signal that your host didn't feed you uh, enough. Um, and I think it's like interesting to see how a concept can be uh, adapted to uh, the local considerations and also foods, even though it's a, it's a global um, concept, it's actually uh, to be interpreted at the local level. So you put into this mix, like for instance, uh, culture, politics, trade as well, food security, um, and geographical like uh, restrictions um, and dietary preference, uh, whether or not your population has a higher risk to be allergic to a certain food um, and so on. And it's, we are living in a globalized like world, but you cannot impose the way you are seeing uh, food uh, to a country that will never agree with your position. And so I'm curious, since you work uh, in consultancy, have you ever had businesses that say launch their product in the US since it's a lot easier to do there and then consult you to ask about the process in Europe and because it's a lot stricter, kind of back away and be like, oh, finally, we're, we're not going to be doing we'll this. Stick in the U we'll stick to the US. <laughs> uh, yes, I would say at least like once a week. Uh, but oh, wow. I try to to remind them that uh, like it's very common, for instance, like uh, a product that is sold like everywhere. We have a different recipe uh, depending on the jurisdiction because you have some additives that are banned in one country are restricted to a level that um, is not the same as another one. Um, and also I always remind my clients is that it's not because it's authorized in one market that you will have like green light in another one. And the worst thing that can happen when you import uh, products is just, it's not gonna go through the customs. And this is when my clients are like, oh yeah, we thought we were uh, all right, but we actually need help because we don't understand why we cannot sell that product in what country. And so working with clients from different parts of the world, your schedule must be so busy. <laughs> I'm just thinking about that. Because even scheduling this recording, right? The time difference was a big consideration. And um, we've, got, we've gotten to interview a lot of people who have started their own businesses, who started their own firms, and they work, uh, they work in, a, in a more um, kind of unusual way to maybe what you would consider going to a place in person, like a big law firm or something like that. Would you say uh, that you're, would you say that being in food law has really opened your eyes to what work-life balance can be and, and having to work around that? Um, a little bit because sometimes I have like quiet weeks and sometimes it's like hell <laughs> in the sense that I have like uh, a couple of clients to manage at the same time, uh, but also like make you uh, rethink and also realize that setting boundaries uh, is healthy and is like necessary. Uh, you cannot be available 24 seven. Uh, you have to uh, organize your calendar to uh, take um, calls, for instance, to reply to emails or to be um, available for like side projects, uh, like podcast interviews or like writing articles or also conferences. Um, I already know that uh, I already knew like for like since uh, June that August will be kind of quiet because 
uh, a lot of people are on holiday. Uh, but from uh, September onwards, uh, which is in two days, uh, it's going to be a little bit more busy for me. And I also have like schedules, uh, like conferences schedules for October, November and most likely December. So I'm trying to organize my my calendar around uh, like uh, my agenda around around these uh, events uh, and also like make you um, like reflect on how much work you can take at once. I have one more question about that. So in food law, are there throughout the calendar year or maybe even like the fiscal year or something, are there like significant patterns of busyness and and quietness throughout the year that you can track? That's a very, I never thought about that. Um, excellent question. And actually, yes, <laughs> because it's related to uh, like, uh, um, like events that you have like um, around the year, like uh, major like holidays, like for instance, uh, when you think about Christmas, like what do you think about in terms of food, like chocolates, uh, like candies, uh, like specialties. Uh, so you need to be ready uh, to start being ready, like at least like six to three months before. Uh, so now people are, um, if they want to launch something for Christmas, and now they are really thinking, oh, like I need to do this and that. I need to check with my suppliers. I need to check with a food lawyer to make sure that everything is on track. Same for Easter. Um, so I would say like Easter and Christmas are the busiest period. Um, and yeah, like each industry, we have uh, uh, periods of like um, calmness and some periods that are more like hectic and difficult to manage. I'm curious to know, since you're in alternative proteins, if you've seen kind of an exponential increase in the interest in producing uh, products that use these uh, rather than, you know, the, the regular, I guess, <laughs> proteins. Um, just because, let's say, in the media, veganism and everything like that has become a lot more popular and talked about. Um, and so I feel like... Um, at least the ideology is spreading a bit more. And so I just want to know if you see that also from a business perspective. Um, yeah, I would say uh, that's what is like the most popular uh, at the moment in the alternative protein industry is everything related to plant-based slash vegan because most of the raw materials, they are not novel food. So they can be sold like pretty much uh, like pretty easily across like jurisdictions. So for companies, it's e easy to um, launch a product, whereas everything fermentation derived um, that is uh, from uh, cellular agriculture is a little bit more difficult uh, to navigate because for cellular agriculture, for instance, only um, Singapore and the US so far have authorized that kind of products and it's also more difficult to scale because you need a lot of machineries to produce a um, a big volume of food, um, and this is not. Uh, this is uh, we are only at the beginning of uh, of the industry. Uh, for instance, like the very first like prototype of uh, cell-based meat was unveiled unveiled ten years ago uh, in Maastricht, the Netherlands, um, and it's amazing to know right now that uh, you can buy uh, cell-based uh, chicken uh, in uh, in Singapore or soon uh, and soon in uh, in uh, in the US. Uh, but I think the next wave would be uh, everything fermentation derived because 
can be 50-50 fermented foods uh, have been around for a long time for several like uh, millennials um, and um, so it's a bit of hit or miss in the sense that one uh, jurisdiction would be okay to have it uh, as um, non-novel food and whereas another one will require a regulatory approval before uh, and the what is like interesting about the alternative protein industry is like uh, it really like picked at the beginning of the pandemics mm -hmm. uh, but now people are like questioning whether or not it's like that's sustainable because many company companies uh, are not able to substantiate uh, certain uh, claims uh, and you can see that some consumers are a little bit wary of the of some of these amazing claims i'm sure that companies they mean well and since most of them they don't have regulatory compliance or lawyers uh, in-house it's also sometimes they manage to interpret like legal um, provisions in a way that I would uh, characterize as extremely uh, creative in the sense it's like uh, not uh, what uh, a lawyer, a legal specialist uh, would uh, necessarily uh, agree. Mathilde, you brought up that, you know, especially in certain kinds of uh, like the cellular uh production i forgot the term that you used but um that was very popular or even even allowed right in the u.s and singapore at the moment as a food as someone specialized in food law do you see it as the need to travel around a lot or even base yourselves in other countries for your work or have you been able to find staying in one place and doing everything internationally from one base to be a realistic um, option um, it depends on your focus um, because for me, since I work remotely with all my clients, I can be based anywhere and I choose Europe because it's easy to travel around. Uh, but if you want to be uh, to advise on the production on site, then it would be uh, easier to base yourself in countries where it's already authorized because you will also gain the knowledge from the companies that already have the technology in place. And also sitting so new, sometimes you have uh, people, the people that are the, the most skilled at um, this technology, are not people that are in the regulatory authorities, but people that uh, are uh, PhD, that have PhDs in this and uh, were founders of uh, these companies that managed to create uh, these products. So it just depends on your uh, goal. And also like I've, uh, talked and I will talk to um, over conferences like uh, by the end of the year, but I specifically choose the one that were uh, happening in uh, in Europe because I cannot travel that much, uh, even though the events they seem amazing. But for me, that's something that uh, maybe will happen next year. And so I wanted to know for something like molecular agriculture to break into a jurisdiction that right now is kind of wary of it or you know it's it's more difficult uh, to do due to the regulations like say europe would that typically occur with like one single company having a product and and fighting and that product going in or is it more kind of like a group advocacy effort and then eventually the industry as a whole is going to become more accepted. Um, how does it usually happen, at least in, in your experience? Like, are you involved in any debates or different things like that to try to vouch for an industry like that to be accepted? Mm -hmm. 
Um, so I would say uh, rather the second uh, option in the sense that when you want to uh, lobby, so lobby is not uh, a word that is ugly. Uh, it just means that uh, the way the regulation is currently written might not be in line with what is happening in the industry. Uh, and as a company, you want to talk to uh, to regulatory authorities to make them understand that this is not in line with what is happening in reality. And they need to consider the uh, potential of the industry and also like the difficulties that they are facing. And the, the best and the most efficient way to do that is through uh, trade associations or coalition or partnerships, however you want to call it because this is when you will have like more weight as a group of uh, companies to uh, make sure that your voice is heard. Um, and I've uh, consulted um, some uh, trade association, for instance, in fungi or plant-based, uh, in the plant-based uh, sectors, um, because sure, you can collaborate with competitors, but you have also to be aware that some um, topics, they would be a little bit more sensitive uh, for instance, everything related to intellectual property companies, they don't want to share their trade secret with uh, with others. But uh, for instance, like what is like uh, challenging for many of them in this industry is everything related to labeling. Um, in Canada, for instance, it's not allowed to say almond milk because milk has to come from a cow or from a, a mammal. Same in Europe. Uh, in the US, it just depends uh, and yeah, if you really also want to um, try to update the way regulations are uh, written, uh, then it's best to first talk with people that are in the same boat and then align on the, the position that you want to defend in front of your opponents. It's incredible. Um, let's let's move towards our, our final talking point. So Mathilde, you brought up the fact that there are options to be, you know, in-house lawyers or there are options to, you know, go to the source, right? The, the you know, uh, geographical source of where like the most work is being done. However, for you, uh, what led you to start your own consultancy, uh, Vegan Food Law? And, you know, what were the main challenges? What were the main rewards that you encountered while doing so? Um, and do you have any tips for listeners who are thinking about how to incorporate business and consultancy um, alongside uh, their law career? Okay. So for me, I would say that I have like a more unusual path in the sense that I've tried many things. Uh, I've worked in both the private and public sectors. So in the public sector, I worked for um, like governments, like research institutes, uh, and also the UN. I've worked uh, at the Food and Agriculture Organization of the UN, uh, FAO, uh, in Italy, in Rome. Um, and then, like in the private sector, I've worked for IP, for IP consultancy, uh, food supplements uh, consultancy, um, law firms, um, and uh, multinational. And it, it gave me a broad understanding of uh, challenges and different like point of view in the industry. Um, and I decided to uh, give it a shot at uh, working for myself because um, when I was working for the multinational, we were solely focusing on the plant-based uh, proteins. And even though I really loved that topic, I thought that after a year and a half, I pretty much like, exhausted what I um, needed to know about this. 
and also because the company I was working for was investing massively uh, in cellular agriculture and fermentation derived products. And I wanted to be able to deal with uh, these products from a legal point of view, but unfortunately it was not possible. Um, and I must say that uh, entrepreneurship is hard because uh, don't fool yourself at the beginning. No one knows what they are doing. <laughs> um, and this is also the beauty of it because uh, just don't be afraid to reach out to people already working in this industry or just to explore like what you like and what you don't like to do. Um, and I must say that I managed to grow my business significantly this year just by networking. Uh, like I believe a lot in like giving before of, uh, before even asking. So this is why I'm really active on LinkedIn. I'm trying to make food regulations more accessible to non-lawyers because sometimes the way they are written are extremely challenging for non-lawyers to uh, comprehend. Um, and uh, thanks to this, I got um, a public speaking opportunities, like uh, podcast interviews, like articles, um, and um, yeah, so far it's been uh, uh, like an amazing uh, journey, but at first it was pretty tough and uh, you just need like one client that will connect you with uh, another company or just like refer you to someone else. Um, and so it's, it's not gonna be the, the same stability at first as working in-house and working in-house is great because you get to understand what a company is doing as a whole, uh, how to handle contacts and also like conflicts with other departments. Uh, when I was working in-house, um, I had some tensions, for instance, with people from sales or marketing because marketing people, their primary goal is to sell the product and to make it look like it's amazing. It's the only product out there, but then legally speaking, you always have to um, kind of like crush their expectations and tell them if you write this, we're going to be sued, it's going to cost that much. Uh, and you just also have to analyze like where the people are coming from and to meet them where they are instead of just telling them you do this because it's written there. Just you need to break down how it's working, like uh, legally speaking. And this is when uh, I've noticed that uh, people were actually reading messages I wrote before, um, before reaching out to me again for like a very similar issue. Well, I need to say, I love your commitment to making the law and the regulations more accessible to the public. Um, I feel like that's an issue in most industries, actually. Uh, I was working in compliance in private education here in Canada. And that's one thing that I noticed is that there's all of these acts, there's all of these regulations, but the people that these acts are supposed to protect, so specifically students and, and mainly international students, can't even comprehend the rights or anything that they have through them. And that's something mm -hmm. that I noticed um, has made it difficult for, for them to actually be able to take full advantage of their experience here. And uh, I find it funny also for you to bring up the fact that you had maybe some conflict with specific departments uh, at uh, the companies you worked at, because uh, that's something that I experienced as well in compliance, right? And, and with the same departments, uh, marketing and sales, um, because our views and our goals are just entirely different. And it's a matter of trying to find kind of a- The common a ground. Exactly the common ground, the middle ground, and, and make it work for 
both. So I, I thought it was just really interesting and funny because I, I can relate. And also, Matilda, I love what you said about the um, giving first and then asking later. I think I think that's an excellent way, not just in entrepreneurship, but but how as you know, as potential lawyers or as current lawyers or not even in law, right? Like uh, that's a good kind of motto to operate the way of navigating and helping others and, and building your own career and presence. Um, that's excellent. I really like what you said there. Thanks. That's something uh, I've learned along the way. And also I was grateful uh, to have had the opportunity to take networking classes when I was studying uh, because yeah, at first, it can be so awkward to reach out to a stranger just to chit chat and um, you need to come to them with something uh, specific because it's always nice to talk to people but many people like in whatever industry they might be busy and if you make your intent clear you have like a much higher um, rates uh, of like uh, response um, and yeah we are like doing this uh, together as a group and uh, we cannot go further if we are not willing to help at first. I think we should end it there. I think that's a great uh, sentiment to, to end with. <laughs> we always have trouble deciding when to end <laughs> for guest interviews <laughs> because I feel like we could just keep talking um, in any case. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Briefcase. Thank you so much, Mathilde, for your wonderful insight on graduate work in law, on the difference between working in-house and being a consultant, and of course, sharing with us and the listeners everything to do with this niche area of vegan food law and alternative meats food law. I have learned so much about the difference in regulation, the difference in the, uh, during the fiscal year when you're busy, as well as what it's like to work um, remote and, and, and internationally as well. It's been incredibly informative. Uh, Mathilde, for listeners that want to learn more about you, how can they do that? Uh, so they can reach out to me um, uh, on LinkedIn. So like my full name, uh, Mathilde uh, Doshi, D-O space C-H-I. Or they can also reach out to me uh, through my uh, website, which is uh, veganfoodlaw.com and also at my email address, info at veganfoodlaw.com. That's wonderful. And listeners will have all of that information uh, in the description below. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, subscribe, share with your friends, and check out our social media. At Beyond the Briefcase Podcast. That's our Instagram account to keep in touch as well as up to date with uh, new episodes with more information about our guest speakers, as well as to share your own thoughts. Uh, thank you so much to Adam, our technical producer. And of course, thank you, listeners. I've been Meg. I've been Sarah. Bye. <laughs>